11, verse number 24, and stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, please. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. Oh, Father, thank you for truth. Thank you for helping us focus beyond the immediate to the eternal. And I pray your anointing be upon the preaching of the word, the hearing of the word. Let there be huge victories in the hearts of your people and solid defeat for our adversary. And may your people rejoice in the triumph of what your son Jesus has done. In his name I pray. Amen. May be seated. I want to speak to you today about this chapter or this verse and verses in this chapter from Hebrews 11 about your reward, your reward, because you need to be reminded it will be worth it all. It will be. In fact, it already is. I would have lived for Jesus even if there were not an eternal reward. I've been blessed to live for him. Number one, we're promised in the word great reward when we, when we by faith choose to serve the Lord. We're not serving him in vain. The word says, by faith Moses made choices. When he was come to years, and that's a direct reference to the rite of passage, age of accountability. Saw children being dedicated. They will one day reach an age of accountability where they will be responsible for their choices. And they will come to years in the eyes of God, which means no longer is mom responsible or dad responsible or pastor responsible or any other leaders around you responsible. But God says, this is your responsibility. We know the word reveals to us that Jesus at age 12 demonstrated accountability. We're told of his birth. We're told of his family taking him into Egypt for a period in his early years. Then there's silence about him until age 12. At age 12, Jesus is at the rite of passage. He's in transition from boyhood to manhood. He's come to years. He's embarking on the moment when he begins to make choices. His whole life begins to change, and his focus now is laser accurate. His prior years were lived in total submission to Joseph and Mary, and he honored them with his obedience. Now, because he's coming of age, there's this classic moment in his life. I must be about my father's business. <laughs> wow. They had left Jesus behind in Jerusalem while they had been there for celebration and feast. And when they returned to find Jesus, recognizing he's not with us, there they find him in the temple, and he is teaching and speaking to the elders in the temple, and they're astonished. Their jaws have dropped at what he's saying to them. And he asked his parents, why are you amazed that I'm in the temple about my father's business and not with you? Because he was moving from childhood to manhood and accountability. Now, he remained accountable to his parents till he was 30, but knew his mission in life was to honor and obey the father. And from age 12 on, that's what he did. There's a place of transition your children are going to walk through. Perhaps at age 13 or 14, maybe a little younger or a little older. 
where no longer will their blood be on the hands of their parents, but they will have to choose and they will decide, will I hang with the culture? Will I do what the culture impresses me to do? Or will I live by the standards of my Savior and Lord Jesus? Like Moses, your children will have to choose when they come to years. The choice will have to be made. Will I desire popularity more than I desire Jesus? Will I give up what I know is right in order to have the peer pressure around me satisfied, just to fit in with the culture? Will I do whatever is necessary to get along and go along? When Moses came to years, he had to make a choice. He had to make several choices. And there was a rite of passage in his life. And when nature teaches us the same thing, that animal kingdom goes through rites of passage and maturing from one stage to another. Nature shows that there are vulnerable periods of time, even in the animal kingdom, as it is with humankind. For example, birds will go through a molting period when their adult feathers are starting to come in. And during that time, they cannot fly, and they become very vulnerable to predators. Snakes shed their skin several times in their lifetime. And as they move from one phase of life to another, and during the phase of shedding of skin, they are very vulnerable to attack because they're temporarily blind. And I begin to think of how children go through this same transition and how vulnerable they are in those stages. Their bodies start to change at 12 and 13, and the emotions and hormonal changes begin to transpire, and that's a very vulnerable period of life. They're quickly approaching the important time when they're going to have to make important choices for themselves. And no one can have love for Jesus and make right choices for you. That becomes your responsibility, and it comes down to, do you have anything in you that is truly connected to God or not? Did anything happen in that time before you got to make that decision? Anything happen that got to you before you got to the age of accountability? And if that's happened for you, when you come to age, you will have power to choose, and you will make the right choice. So the word says, when he came to years, he refused by faith to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused. So true faith doesn't just take things. Doesn't just receive things from God. Doesn't just grab and demand things from the Lord. But if you have authentic faith in Jesus Christ, you realize there's also a place of serving with that faith. That that's how you also demonstrated, taking you to number two, faith causes you to refuse certain things. You refuse to fit in if it's going to cost you your convictions. You refuse to laugh when they take the name of the Lord in vain. You refuse to be a part of that filth. You refuse to date someone who is using substance and does not proclaim faith in Christ. You refuse to listen to certain things. You refuse to be unethical in how you do business. There is something about real faith that doesn't just accept, but real faith also refuses. Because real faith also possesses a stubborn no. Real faith says there are things I cannot accept, and there are things I refuse because I have faith in my God 
I refuse your offer. I refuse. So listen to what he refused to be called. He refused to be called the grandson of the Pharaoh. He refused the popularity of being a member of the royal family. Can you imagine what that meant in that day to be a member of the royal family? I mean, he refused to be a part of the Egyptian dynasty. And he did it because he had faith in God. Moses was in the line of the pharaohs. He was living in the palace. He was an heir to the throne of the pharaoh. He would have had all the power of Egypt at his disposal. He would have had a harem of the most beautiful women in the earth. But his faith in God caused him to stand and to declare, I'd rather be out there in the tents with the poor Israelites, those that are called God's people, than have all the wealth and the esteem and the power and the popularity that Egypt has to offer. I'd rather be in church than at the party. I'd rather be in church than at the ball game. I'd rather be in the presence of the Lord. I'd rather be in an evening service than hanging out with the rest of the culture. Notice what it says. It says, Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater. Listen now, than all the riches of Egypt. So he would not allow the culture to entice him away from his God-given focus. That's boggling to the mind. He valued the reproach. He didn't value the goodness of Christ or the happy time days with Christ or the prosperous and fun and exciting times with Christ, the good days. No, he esteemed the worst days, the reproach, the embarrassment of being a Christian, the rejection of saying, no, I'm not going to participate with that. This is the Lord's day. I'm not going to do that because it's unethical. I'm not going to be a part of that because it might bring question. He valued that more than the best that sin had to offer. He said, I'm comparing the two. And I can say, though I have all that Egypt has to offer, by faith I choose my identity with Christ. In some ways, bearing that reproach. Moses said, the downside of being an Israelite is far better than all that Egypt has to offer me. Moses said, I'd rather have the walk with God and walk with the people of God. I value that more than all the wealth of Egypt. Now, let's look at the riches of Egypt for a moment. Historians tell us that Pharaoh Moses would have commanded in today's wealth at least $100 billion. You talk about the lifestyles of the Forbes 500 wealthiest. <laughs> Moses would have inherited over $100 billion. And you read through that stuff and you don't comprehend what it was he walked away from. He would have been worth $100 billion. I mean, you take Donald Trump and Buffett and Soros and put them all together. They're all paupers if you combine them together compared to the lifestyle that Moses would have possessed. All he had to do was identify with Egypt. Listen, and he could have had the wealth of over $100 billion. I wonder what you would sell your soul for. I wonder what would you give up your walk with God for. He said, mine is more valuable than $100 billion. Now, how in the world could he come to such a conclusion? How did he figure and rationalize that the payoff was far better loving God than $100 billion in wealth? Well, it's revealed in the one little phrase in Hebrews eleven twenty six. He was looking ahead 
to his great reward. Or, as the message says, he was looking ahead anticipating the payoff. Mm. Number three, there is a reward. It didn't say he had respect for the reward. And we don't have the right terminology in our English language to capture this. Our best word is recompense. Say recompense. What does that mean? It's a legal term. It means to make amends for previous disadvantages. So when Moses looked at $100 billion and then he looked at the reward of the believer, listen, he said, there's no comparison. I choose the reward of the believer. He said, because of the recompense, listen, which is the making of amends for every disadvantage he had to go through by his identification with God and his people. Now, in civil court, if you're sued by someone, the word recompense may come into play legally. For instance, if you're involved in a car wreck and someone is injured because it was your fault, you were breaking the law, you ran the red light over here by Calusa and 99 while you were texting, and you ran into somebody, there are two forms of payment due. Punitive damages, payment for all the costs and rehabilitation of the vehicle and the doctor bills that accumulated, paying, paying back what was lost because of you being at fault. Then there are compensatory damages, not just paying back for what they lost, but payment for the pain incurred, loss of work, suffering, some cases disability and loss of income, and you will, you will have to compensate, see, because of that loss of income. And it's extra for the hurt piled on top of the accident. And that, that's the word Moses uses in this passage. He said, I look at the 100 billion, and then I look at the reward for the believer. Oh, he said, not only will they get back anything they lost for the sake of Jesus, but every time you hurt, every time it was difficult, every time you resisted temptation, every time you did not yield, for every time you were dissed, any time you were overlooked because of your Christian position, every time you refused to be compacted by the culture and be conformed to this world, he said, I will give you recompense extra on top of whatever you had to give up, far greater than anything the world has to offer you. Living for Jesus in the long run pays much, much more. You can leave here today and go live the rest of this, your life like this culture. You can go cross all the lines. You can go do all the stuff they do. But we won't. Do you know why? Because we love him because he first loved us. And we believe that he will make it up to us if we will serve him. I'm preaching about eternal reward. About don't feel sorry for me because I'm a Christian. Don't look at me and think, poor thing, he's a Christian. And don't you allow anyone in school to put you down for your faith, particularly teachers or professors. Students, you will be stronger than ever this year. God is not dead. And go see it and armor up and stand your ground. Grow stronger. I made my choice. I chose Jesus over the culture. So when that trumpet sounds, suddenly your feet will leave the earth. And it dawns on you in midair, hey, I've made it. (laughs) It's going to be worth it all when Jesus returns. Now, we don't instantly go to heaven. Now, watch what happens because the word says the dead in Christ will rise first. 
then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord where? In the air. So there's going to be a rendezvous in the atmosphere. And we've all gathered there out of every tribe, kindred, and tongue. And we've all gathered there from all over the planet. Then Jesus will lead us in a victory parade from this atmosphere into the holy city. And the joy that's going to overcome us. Oh my goodness. Because we realize and we're so glad we made the right choice. And pastors don't preach like this anymore. All people want to hear about from pulpits today about my new car, my new house. Please make me comfortable. Don't pressure us to serve the Lord. Don't require of us that we serve, that we do anything other than show up and punch a clock on Sunday. Don't make us uncomfortable. But the truth is the best this world has to offer is nothing compared to what you receive in your reward for serving Jesus. Not just getting your ticket punched to go to heaven, but for serving Jesus. And what's heaven going to be like? What's your reward going to be like? The word is filled with references to this place called heaven. And either we need to preach about heaven or you can throw a quarter of your Bible out the door. Because that's how much of it is in the scripture. If you want to know what heaven is like, you need to talk to someone who has been there. And I'm going to tell you of someone who's been there and doesn't want you to go there. And his name is Lucifer. And he does not want you to go there. And he's done everything within his ability to keep you from ever getting there. Now, the little boy in the story of the movie that comes out this week will tell you of his experiences in heaven. But let me show you what the scripture says Lucifer talked about when he was referring to heaven. Isaiah the prophet, speaking for God, declares that this is what Lucifer said. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. So in Isaiah 14, Lucifer said three things about heaven. Number one, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Number two, he said, I will exalt myself above the stars. And number three, in the sides of the north. So Lucifer indicated the direction of heaven above the heights of the clouds, then above the stars. Then he gives a reference to where heaven is in the sides of the north. So the northern part of the universe has something to do with heaven's location. For the word says in 1 Kings, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. Wow. He says, God dwells in the heavens of heavens and permeates them. So indeed heaven, Deuteronomy 10, and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. So we can derive from the word, there's something above, above what we can see, something beyond our ability to comprehend in our natural senses, something beyond our moon and solar system and our galaxy and other galaxies and star systems, as far as we can see out into the universe, something even beyond that. There is a heaven of heavens, the literal dwelling place of the throne of God. So to discover the vicinity of where heaven is located, you're going to look to the scripture. Lucifer said, I will sit in the sides of the north. I will set my throne above God's throne. So Lucifer indicates that heaven is in the northern part of the universe. 
And it goes, listen, the exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west or from the south. Notice what direction is left out. But God is the judge. Oh. He puts down one and exalts another. So it doesn't reference the north specifically, but says promotion comes from the Lord. And the only direction left uncovered was, is the north. Because the east, west, and south are talked about, not the north. Why? Because God's throne is there. And I, that's where exaltation comes from. So I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its mist, like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. So scholars looking at this passage say that's a depiction of God's throne moving from its location toward earth. So where's that coming from? It says, coming out of the north. So there is some, something about the northern part of the universe. And God has his throne set in a place. Now, there are very few stars in the northern part of our universe that we can see. But there's a prominent one there called the North Star. For centuries, the sea captains, if their navigating equipment wasn't working, they would look at the North Star. Because they knew if we find the North Star, we can plot our direction. Because the North Star stands out so prominently. And it could be the North Star stands there prominently because it's under the throne of God. Could it be that when Revelation says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Could it be that's a sign in the heavens? If you want to get to him, you have to go through one star, one name, one man, Jesus the Christ. So as you look into the word, you begin to understand that not only is God's throne located in a place called heaven, perhaps on the north side of the universe, but how far is it to that place? Second Corinthians 12, Paul said something about heaven. He said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Now, 14 years before this was written, Paul was in a place, a city called Lystra, and he was stoned to death. And while he's lying there, bleeding out under a pile of rocks, God sent an angel and gave Paul a personal escort into heaven. He walked the streets of gold. He saw heaven. He saw where your loved ones reside. He saw the land where there is no sorrow, nor crying, or dying, or sighing. And no undertakers, no policemen, no wars, no famine, no disease, no need for doctors. He said, I saw that place. And he said, I saw such things. It's not lawful for me to utter or describe. He said, what I saw was glorious. What I saw when I was caught up to the third heaven, I cannot adequately describe. So be reminded, number four, the reward is heaven. What does it mean, the third heaven? Genesis 1.8, God creates the first heaven. It's the clouds, the atmosphere we breathe. That's the first heaven. Second heaven, he creates the stars and the galaxies. We can see the universe around us in the night sky. And then there's the third heaven, a location that man can never discover in his finite capability. It's where the throne of God resides. It's a place where the new Jerusalem is being built for us. 
It's our permanent dwelling place. And the word says, heaven has a door. And there are five men in the scripture who saw heaven's door. One day when we pass on through death or rapture, there's a door that will open for us. In Matthew 3, Jesus saw the door of heaven open up when he was baptized. Peter in Acts 10 saw heaven open up when he was at Joppa and the Lord let down this huge giant screen in front of him and showed him that he was to go preach the gospel of the Gentiles. And he went over to the household of Cornelius, the Roman, and they all got born again in that house. And he saw heaven open, the door open. In Acts 7, Stephen saw heaven open as he was being stoned to death. In Ezekiel 1, he, the prophet, saw heaven open. In Revelation 4, John said, I saw a door and a voice said, come up here. So in the Greek, the word door is thera, T-H-E-R-A, thera, which means portal, entry. Understand there is a place in the heaven of heavens above what we can discover with human technology, what we can figure out with our abilities, a heaven of heavens, and there's a portal. There is an entry spot. There is a door the word speaks about. In the Old Testament, the father of our faith, Abraham, searched for that city. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. So what's this city like? What will heaven be like? Well, it's going to be the universe's most elegant of all places. There's nothing in human existence to compare with it. John could not describe it adequately, even though he saw it. On earth, the most elegant city the world has ever known was ancient Babylon. It was highly fortified, protected, with 60 miles of walls around it. Wow. Its outside wall was 700 feet wide, an outside and inside wall. Horses and soldiers would race across the top of that city wall. The inner walls were 250 feet wide. And there were cauldrons of boiling hot lead that they kept going on the tops of those walls. So any invading army that attempted to penetrate those walls wouldn't have a very good experience trying that. Hundreds of archers stood on guard in those inner walls. And the banquet hall of the king of Babylon, just one place in his palace, was 1,066 feet wide and one mile in length. That was his banquet hall. One room. Around the walls were 500 pillars, and on the top of them were carved elephants. Also on those 500 pillars, there were soldiers standing guard. And from those pillars were the hanging gardens of potted flowers that you probably have read about. And families would go beneath them to eat and fellowship and picnic. And they had trained peacocks, and they would pull carts of wine from table to table around the picnickers. And they had an orchestra of 32,000 musicians and singers, and God crashed their party and destroyed that corrupt city in one day. Boom. Okay? As I think of that city, I then think of what Jesus said. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And he said, there I will eat the marriage supper of the Lamb with you. So if you think that earthly banquet hall was something else, 
Wait until you see what he's prepared for a hall for his bride, the church, when we're gathered all together in one place at once. For those who chose to receive by faith the recompense of reward. And notice the new Jerusalem. It's called the city of God. It's called the heavenly city in the heaven of heavens. John was permitted to measure that city, and he said, it's 1,500 miles cubed. Length, width, and height, 1,500 miles, all directions. Now, if you were to place the capital city of the new Jerusalem over the United States, it would stretch from Maine to Florida and would stretch from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River. And then it would ascend 1,500 miles upward. The city of God's got 12 foundations, each made of transparent stone. First foundation is made of diamond. The second foundation is made of sapphire. Third is made of aquamarine. The fourth is made of green-colored stone. The fifth is a stone of white mixed with red. And then number six, the blood-red stone. Seven, gold mixed with yellow. Number eight, a bluish-green stone. Number nine, topaz. Ten, a yellow-green stone. And number 11, a reddish-yellow stone. And number 12, an amethyst, a purple stone. So all of these are stacked as dividing highways for travel. All transparent. You can see through them the radiance of the brightness of the Son of God shining through all 12 levels because he lights the entire city. And the mansions that Jesus spoke about, he said, in my Father's house are many mansions. Now imagine with me, let's go on a tour. The size of the city accommodates 3,575,000,000 square feet. So if each mansion in the city of Jerusalem were 5,000 square feet, the city can accommodate over 30 billion people. The New Jerusalem is big enough to house every human being born on planet Earth because God never intended one person to end up in hell. He has room for you in heaven. If you determined to spend, listen, one hour in each mansion, it would take you 3,429,646 years to take them all in. If you were to spend one day visiting in each of those mansions, you would take 91,981,916 years to visit every one of the mansions. What a reward heaven's going to be. Wow. And you are his bride. And the main streets of heaven are 1,500 miles long. We won't have to wait for Caltrans to make them four or six lanes. Okay? Get all kinds of permits. No. Those streets are transparent gold. I mean, if you like to run, have at it, man. Imagine eating from the tree of life like Adam and Eve did and never aging a day. Imagine the atmosphere of heaven. Imagine meeting with the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and listening to them tell their stories. Imagine the lion and the lamb lying down together. Imagine the joy of this city. Imagine the celebration. Imagine that after all that Jesus and we celebrate that came to earth to do, and we broke bread and drank the cup last Sunday night, we enter now into Holy Week, and we remember all the sacrifice and the suffering and the pain. Imagine now the joy 
For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It will be worth any sacrifice or suffering you endure. Because he did it, suffered and sacrificed, so that he could bring many sons into glory. So Paul puts it like this. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. Now I can imagine him laughing at the at the the suggestions of the devil over the course of his ministry life. How many times the devil tried to kill this guy? And he said, "Mm -mm. now I'm done. Now I will die. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Wow. So go with me, as I took my family once, to the hole in the ground underneath a small church just outside the Roman Forum near Rome where Paul was being held until they beheaded him. And I thought about it. I wish I could have just shown you about a minute of the footage that we took there so you could, you could really go there and see. how You can't stand up in there, a guy my size for sure. It's dark, it's damp. It's not the kind of place you'd ever want to spend a day. And he hears them coming for him. They're going to pull him out of that hole by his armpits. He's going to be beheaded. They're going to take him just a few yards away from that hole in the ground into the forum and put him to death. And as they take Paul out of the hole in the ground, listen to me, the executioner probably is smiling at him saying, I'm going to take your head off. Probably Paul looked back at him and thought, you can't take my head. My head is Christ. Live as Christ. To die is gain. And someone would say, well, Paul must have been very frightened being intimidated by these Romans. No, no, no. I don't think fear gripped him in any way. Because if you read the last things he wrote just before they executed him, there's not an iota of fear. There's not an iota of self-pity. Oh, look what they're going to do to me. Oh, look where I'm having to live. Look how terrible life is to me. He's saying, keep the faith. Keep serving Jesus. Read his last letters from the pit. He walks out to the chopping block. He sees the blade that's going to separate his head from his body. I believe he had a flashback of that trip and tour he took into heaven. And coming up out of his spirit had to be, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? I'm ready to be offered because I have finished my course. He has no fear of death whatsoever. He's faced it off many times because when his life was over, angels escort him into the presence of Jesus. And understand, you can look at death and say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you arrive in heaven as his child, it's not a temporary stay. It's forever. Thank the Lord. Amen? Eternity. How long is eternity? If a sparrow took one drop of water in its beak out of the Pacific Ocean and would fly the 250,000 miles to the moon at its speed, its own speed, and then returned, it would take him one year. If he did that year after year after year after year, a drop at a time, 
until he moved the entire Pacific Ocean to the moon, eternity would just have begun. Wow. That's how long you're going to get to be with Jesus. For you, Jesus, were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. No doubt Moses understood what we all understand. Life is short. You may get 70, you may get 80, maybe 90 or above years. Your mom just turned 90 this past week. Your dad's about to. Life is short. Even 90 years is just a little bit of time. Moses would have inherited 100 plus billion dollars. But he looked at that in terms of time, eternity, and the God that I serve. He says, you know what? I'll take God every time. Even if I got to live 90 years, it's over, done, finished. Somebody else inherits it. I don't get to keep a penny of it. So it's worthless to me at that point. So it's just to be used. That's all. In the meantime, I've got an eternal reward. And I'm not going to get contaminated by the world's drawing me into its system. Far greater than the riches of Egypt. Or the riches of my soul being in the hands of my God. So I say to everybody here today, it will be worth it all when you step into heaven so you get to choice to make the choice Moses did Abraham did Joshua did the disciples did what you decide here today affects you on into eternity and your descendants those who come after you, your children grandchildren and the scripture puts it like this I have set before you God says life life and death blessing and curse and then he says, let me make a suggestion to you, so just in case you can't figure it out. Choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So we get to choose this. And he nudges us by saying, no matter what they're offering you, stay over here because the other ends in destruction, curse and death, life and blessing." Anybody have to think about, about that very long? <laughs> That's a pretty simple decision and conclusion, is it not? Yeah. So let's thank. Let's thank God for what he's prepared for us. Let's thank God for what Jesus did for you and me, that we are here today because of what Christ has done. And eyes are closed for a few seconds as we thank the Lord and we give glory to God for his son. And beyond the fact that we've been eradicated in terms of the sin and the blight that sin's caused on us. All of that's been lifted off of us. Think of what you have done for us forever. Wow. Oh my goodness. We can't take it in. It is amazing. So with eyes closed, 